0: Some people just don't believe that God exists. It's all there is to it. Other people think he exists, but they they don't really see the relevance of him. In their conception, he is uh, the great creator who sort of wound up the world and been sort of casually observing it, gradually winding down. Other people think he exists, but they see him as a kind of celestial Santa Claus who occasionally dispenses goodies and then disappears for 12 months. Others think of him as being rather like a sick relative. You know he's there and you you feel guilty that you don't bother with him very much, but once in a while you show up just to see how he's doing. And others sort of have the impression that he's rather benign, absent-minded, and sort of cuddly, and it will all come out in the wash, and we really don't need to worry about him too much. Then there's another idea of God, and that is that he is transcendent, holy, majestic, awesome, and with us. Emmanuel, that he is not remote and he is not irrelevant, that he is intimately involved not only in the world that he made, but in the lives of the creatures whom he created, and that he is committed to developing a relationship with us. When the angelic messenger talked to Joseph about the baby that was to be born, he drew from an ancient prophecy of Isaiah, who had said that the time would come when a virgin would bring forth a child, and his name would be Emmanuel. And this was a prophetic statement that the time would come when God would actually visit our planet. And the Christian message is that when Jesus Christ was born on that first Christmas time, it was actually God, the transcendent, awesome, holy, righteous God, the creator and upholder of all things. It was actually God with us, Emmanuel. Now, that is either the most palpable nonsense or the most sublime truth. It it is certainly not something that we can with benign neglect we either reject it out of hand and say don't give me that nonsense or we say that is utterly incredible it's wonderful but then the question would come to mind but why would god visit us well the angel not only said to joseph his name is emmanuel he said you shall call him jesus For he shall save his people from their sins. Emmanuel is Jesus. God with us is the one who would save us from our sins. There is direct correlation between God visiting our planet and our sin. The express purpose in coming was that God who had created the world perfect had seen it come apart. He could have determined to simply exterminate and say it was a very good experiment, it didn't work that time, trash it, and we'll do it again sometime. He chose not to do that, he chose to visit its fallen creation and rectify what had gone wrong. He chose in the person of Jesus to be God with us, to deal with the fundamental universal problem, which is sin, And save us from it. So if we're going to even begin to grasp Christmas, we've got to understand salvation. That's what it's about. And if we're going to understand salvation, we've got to get a handle on sin. Now, I realize that this is hardly a Christmassy sort of feel-good Christmas message. But it just happens to be what Christmas is supposed to be about. We have a a perverted genius for trivializing the momentous in our culture. We, We have a remarkable ability to ignore the profound and embrace the superficial. Just look at Christmas. And yet, if it is true that Christmas is all about God with us, as Jesus, with the express purpose of saving us from our sin... We need to think about salvation. We need to think about sin at Christmas. Now, what do we mean by sin? Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. The U.S. Court of Appeal in the Ninth District handed down a decision. It was a momentous decision. They decided that the 100-foot cross that had stood for 60 years on Mount Davidson, the highest point of San Francisco, must come down. It must come down. This 100-foot cross had no business being there. The the reason that it had to come down, they said, was that it was on government property that was cared for by hard-earned taxpayers' money, and that if hard-earned taxpayers' money was going towards the upkeep of a 100-foot cross that had stood for 60 years, the highest point around San Francisco then that was the government endorsing Christianity and that is illegal so it's got to come down now the question that I would have for you this morning is not are you going to get all worked up about this because I'm not in actual fact it's it's no big deal really except just a strange way of interpreting the law or the constitution the point however is this I would ask you, whatever you think about them bringing down that cross, is it sinful to have that cross up there? And I think probably all of us would say, well, no, the sin is not up on the mountain in San Francisco, it's it's down in in San Francisco. They got the wrong place, that's all. No, it's clearly not sinful, but it is illegal. And here's a strange thing. It is possible... Right now, uh, to find that something is illegal but isn 't sinful, oh and by the way, it is possible to find some things that are legal and are totally sinful. Can you think of any yeah don 't spend a lot of time on it. The, the point is this: that we should never confuse illegal with sinful what 's the difference? Well, the difference is this: that that which is illegal contravenes the law of the land, but that which is sinful contravenes the law. God. And the two are not necessarily even close to each other. Now, a lot of people are very concerned about being legal. They want to stay out of jail, which is a very, very good thing to do. So, so please don't let me discourage you if that is your major concern, but let me assure you, it is perfectly possible to live a thoroughly legal life and be utterly sinful at the same time. And there's something far more important than being legal. It is dealing with the sin problem. Now, if it is true that sin has to do with our relationship to God as opposed to relating to the law of the land, what is the issue? Well, the issue is this, that God created human beings to be dependent upon Him and obedient to Him. We've heard that over and over again. And He gave us opportunities to do it, And the net result is that we find that we we prefer to be independent of God. In other words, to do our own thing. He becomes an inconvenience at times. And instead of being dependent, we prefer to be independent. And instead of being obedient, that's really a drag at times. We find it much easier to be disobedient. Now, if we prefer independence to dependence and disobedience to obedience... What we do is we defy, we defy the divine will. And if we defy the divine will, we deny the divine authority. And that is what is happening in our hearts. That is what is happening in our relationships. That is what is happening in our culture, in our society. Now, the word for it is sin. A denying, a defying of God's will and God's purpose. Sin is an affront to God. Sin is a denying of God's authority. It is a defying of God's will. Now then, as a result of that, there has been introduced into our world that which messes up the divine order, so that we find a defiling of divine order. Look at it this way. If I were to say to you, Uh, what's wrong with the world today, you probably would have no difficulty at all giving a list of things that you know are wrong with the world today. Now, as soon as you are able to identify something that is wrong with the world today, you are obviously basing that on a sense of what is right. You cannot say what is wrong unless you have an innate sense of what is right. Now, if you have an innate sense of what is right, you presumably have an inherent sense of what is right, and what is good, and what is true. Now, wherever in the world do we get ideas like right, and good, and true, and beautiful? Where do they come from? They come from the Creator, who is right, and good, and true. Now, as we look at our world, we have no difficulty at all identifying what is untrue, what is unrighteous, what is ugly, what is crude, what is destructive. You see, when we identify these things, we are identifying the defiling of the divine order. For the God who is good and right and true created an order that is good and right and true. But the denying of the divine authority and the defying of the divine will introduced a defiling of the divine order. We call it sin. And it is pervasive. It's wherever you look. Now, I'm not just talking about institutionalized sin. I'm not just talking about sin in an abstract sense. I'm talking about a powerful thing called sin that resides in the human being. It, it is a dynamic within us. I am by no stretch of the imagination practical when it comes to fixing things around the home. In fact... Our family pray earnestly when I'm going to fix something. And uh, their prayers, as far as I can see, rarely work. We got a new stove in my new study in our new home. It's very nice. It's one of these pseudo-old-fashioned pot-belly-ish sort of stoves. Do you you understand what I mean? Well, it, it doesn't burn real logs. It's got artificial logs. And it doesn't have you know, a fire that you sort of scrape around, it's it's gas. And so I had to get the thing going. Now, I read all the instructions. I read them carefully, forwards, backwards, every way. I memorized the instructions, and then I tried to implement the instructions. Nothing worked. But I discovered eventually that what I was supposed to be doing was getting a pilot light going. And then if I could get the pilot light going, then eventually we could get the gas coming through, and the whole thing would go. Now, my problem was I could get the gas coming through. I couldn't get the pilot light going. And so we were in dire danger of going to glory rather sooner than anticipated. <laughs> now, I, I won't go into details. I did get it lit, and, and uh, we're still here. So there was a degree of success there. The point, however, is this, that preachers are usually not particularly practical. And while they're being terribly impractical, they are thinking profound spiritual principles. You see, so while I'm trying to get this thing lit, I'm thinking to myself, that's like human beings. (laughs) You probably can't see the connection, but there is. You see, this little pilot light is just burning there quietly, unobtrusively, but you just liberate the gas at the right time, and poof, the whole thing goes. There is in every human being a little pilot light, a little thing burning there. It is an inclination, it is a proclivity to sin. Theologians call it fallenness, or they call it original sin, or they call it flesh. There is in all of us an inclination to denial, an inclination to defiance of divine will and divine order. It is a powerful dynamic with us. It is unobtrusive at times until the right gases just come our way. So that if I find myself confronted with certain sexually-oriented images, guess what? The little pilot light, poof, into flame and lust. Takes over. Or I find myself in a situation where somebody else has got what I want. The little pilot light finds that the gas is coming over, poof, envy. Takes over. Or I find myself in a situation where I can make a quick buck and I can cut some corners and the little pilot light is burning there just waiting for it, and the gas comes on. Guess what? Hypocrisy, and lying, and cheating take over. You, you get my drift, don't you? You know you. I don't need to talk about you. I'll talk about me. I know me. You know you. And if you're perfectly honest with yourself, you would say that we don't just have a defiling of the divine order. We don't just have that uneasy sense that there's something pervasively wrong with our world. And we don't just say, and it has something to do with sin. What we do say is this. This sin problem has its root in me. I am capable, given the right set of circumstances, of doing things that horrify Me. It's called sin. Now, this sin thing is so powerful, it will work on us and eventually get a, a tremendous grip upon us. Paul put it this way. He said, the good things that I plan to do, I don't do them. I make great resolution, but I don't do them. And the bad things that I promise myself I will no longer do, I find myself reverting to them constantly. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. And then he explains what the problem is. He said, it's sin. He said, it's sin. Now, there's a man who's come to terms with himself. He's not fobbing it off. He's not giving it fancy names. He is saying there is a proclivity, an inclination in me towards denial of divine authority and defiance of God's will an embracing of independence in the place of dependence, an enamorment of disobedience rather than obedience, and I find the pilot light is burning, and the circumstances come my way, and I find myself doing things that I have no business doing, and contributing to the disorder, contributing to the sense that all is not well. I may feel that my contribution is minimal, but I know I'm part of it, There's a sin problem in our world. It's in our society and it's in me. That's the bad news and here's the good news. Emmanuel. Emmanuel God is with us. In the person of Jesus to save us from our sins. But who cares about being saved if they've never grappled with their sin? Why look for a remedy if you haven't discovered the sickness? Why look for a solution? if you haven't grasped the problem. In all the superficialities of contemporary Christmas, and in all the trivialities that will grasp our mind and demand our energy and our time this Christmas time, what we really need is to take some good, long, hard contemplation on the reality of sin, which is not only a denial and a defiance, and a defiling, and a dynamic, but it is a degenerative in our lives too. It has a progressively degenerating effect upon us. My dad used to tell the story of the man who had a pet python. Can you imagine anybody having a pet python? He had this little python, he used to wrap it around his arm, he would lay it around his neck, and he used to play with his python and... He fed it, and what happens when you feed little pet pythons is that they become big pet pythons. And eventually, he could do all kinds of wonderful things with this big pet python. He got a job in a circus. And the climax of his act with his big pet python was that the python would wrap itself around his body until he was completely enveloped in python. And then he would lay his head on the top of his head. The crowd would cheer. Then he would give a signal. I don't know how he did it, but he gave a signal. Hey, python, let me go. I don't know what he was. And and the python would simply release its master. And one day, instead of releasing him, the crowd were horrified to hear the slow crunching of bones as the python, who had been a plaything, turned into a master. Sin has a degenerative effect upon human beings. You play with it at first. It plays with you in the end. How many addicts started out with fun? I don't care what the addiction might be. Most of the addiction started out with the idea of fun. This is a plaything, And in the end, it played relentlessly and mercilessly with you. And I'm not just talking about cocaine, and I'm not just talking about pornography. I'm talking about addiction to anger, and I'm talking about addiction to greed, and I'm talking about addiction to envy. I'm talking about sin. You say, Wow, I came for an upbeat Christmas message, and what do I get? you're going to get an upbeat Christmas message because you see, the whole point of Christmas is it's God with us for a purpose and the purpose is that he might be Jesus and the whole meaning of Jesus is that he saves people from their sin. But if we haven't figured out sin, how in the world will we figure out salvation? If you don't know salvation, you ain't got a clue about Christmas. Why would it be necessary for God to come and do something about this? I'm glad you asked that. Little touch of humor there, trying to lighten it a bit, and <laughs> went across great, didn't it? First thing to bear in mind is this that when we think in terms of sin, we've got to come term, to terms with the fact that sin is a fundamentally spiritual issue. Now, I'll grant you that this fundamental spiritual thing called sin has all kinds of societal ramifications. The problem that we have is this, that we have become so alert to and aware of the societal ramifications of a spiritual problem that we feel that if we can get a social response to a societal problem, we've solved the problem. So, the good news is this, Major crime in major cities in the United States of America is on the decrease. That is wonderful news. It's a major social problem, this violent crime issue. And it's wonderful to know that it is on the decrease statistically. The reason for the decrease, it depends who you ask. Some people would say, we've got more police on the beat. Some people would say, we've reorganized the, the police system and they're doing a better job. Other people say it's nothing to do with that. If we get the cocaine dealers out of the neighborhood, violent crime disappears. I I have no idea what the reason for it is. But I do know this, that it is perfectly possible to get rid of violent crime and solve a societal problem and not deal with the root issues. For the root issues are fundamentally spiritual. I fully understand that societal concerns can produce societal situations. So there's no question about it that if somebody is born into an economically deprived area, if they are brought up in poverty if they have very, very real difficulties in their area where there's all kinds of violent crime, there is a much higher probability of them finishing up in prison than if that were not the case. But I also know this, there are some people who are born and live in those kinds of situations all their lives, and they're the most godly people on the face of God's green earth. And I also know that there are some kids brought up in the best part of the highest economic group in the most salubrious suburbs of the city and they're utter crooks. What's the problem? The problem is to recognize this, there's a spiritual problem here. And you can find some people in desperate, desperate areas who live according to divine principle and they're godly people in a hellhole. And you'll find other people who are utter rascals in a beautiful paradise. Don't confuse the issue here. It's a fundamental spiritual issue. And because the spiritual issue requires a spiritual remedy, we should applaud, we should be involved in, we should be concerned about social answers to societal problems. We should never confuse them with the spiritual root behind second thing to bear in mind is this, that sin is a fundamentally eternal issue. The Bible says this, the wages of sin is death. We're all somewhat acquainted with death. We do know that it is a termination of temporal experience. We do know that Scripture teaches that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that judgment. In other words, we have all been taught that we are not just temporal, we have the potential to be eternal. There is an eternal dimension to our humanity. Now, if it is true that the wages of sin is death, and we read our Bibles carefully, we'll discover that the death that is the wages of sin is not just physical death, and it is not just spiritual death, it is eternal death. And because sin is a fundamentally eternal problem, it requires an eternal remedy. It's a spiritual problem requiring a spiritual remedy. It is an eternal problem requiring an eternal remedy. And as we've already pointed out, sin is fundamentally an affront to God. Sin is fundamentally an affront to God. God... I don't even know if you're there, but some crank told me that you had said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I want you to know, God, that I think that is a lot of utter nonsense. I have the slightest intention of loving you with all my heart. I don't like my neighbors. If you could give me a new set, I might get around to liking them. But loving them, forget it. Is that a common attitude? You know it is. Now, we don't verbalize it. You know it is. Sin is an affront to God. God says, thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt not do this. The reason for it, incidentally, is that if we don't do those things, we'll begin to reflect God's character, and we will retain that divine sense of order. You remember? What is good, and what is right, and what is true, what is beautiful, what is noble. Don't do that garbage, and it'll be good, and right, and true, and noble, and beautiful. We say we want to do it. What's wrong with us? Well, there's that pilot light. The problem with this pilot light is we deny and we defy and we defile. This dynamic degenerates within us. And as a result, we begin to discover... We discover what? We begin to discover that we are flying in the face of God. And if it is true that sin is a fundamentally spiritual problem requiring a spiritual answer... And it is an eternal problem requiring an eternal answer. It is a divine problem requiring a divine answer. And that is why God had to take the initiative. Dead. Emmanuel. God. With us. In the person of Jesus who came to save us from our sins. Psalm 136 is a very similar statement to that which the angel made to Joseph. And there he talks about God is going to redeem his people from their sins. God is going to redeem people from their sins. And redeem is a beautiful word. Redemption is a beautiful word. In the Old Testament, Psalm 130, obviously in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the idea of redemption had to do with liberating captives liberating slaves, liberating prisoners of war. It was always the idea of liberating and restoring them to their rightful place. That's redemption. But it was always at a cost. So in redemption, you've got the idea of release, restoration, renewal, all at profound cost. Now this word is taken over theologically and it it speaks about our salvation. It speaks about God in Christ at terrible, terrible cost. Coming into our world, living our life, identifying with our frailty, bearing our sorrows, assuming our guilt, accepting our judgment, dying our death, and rising gloriously from the dead, and invading heaven in the power of His resurrection, and being shown to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And this Jesus. This Jesus is now offered as Savior. The one who will save us from the inner dynamic of sin. The one who will forgive us all the consequences of our sin. All the poof, you remember? All the poof. All the way that it exploded on us. It burst out on us, given the circumstances. He will save us from the consequences of it. He'll save us from the power of it. And eventually, he'll save us from the whole rotten presence of it. And he will install us in his kingdom where things will be right, good, and true, and beautiful. It's all because he came to redeem. He comes to release us from that which hinders and mars and spoils our guilt, our shame, gives us forgiveness. He comes to be a counteracting dynamic in our lives to save us from that inner power in order that He might begin to change us more and more into His image. And we become His people. He came to redeem His people. But Psalm 130 tells us this, that in order that He might redeem His people, we must exclusively hope in Him. Hope in Him. Put our trust in Him. Put our confidence in Him. Roll our burden on Him. Bring our guilt to Him. Hand our lives over to Him. And in so doing, begin to discover what it means to be redeemed, released, restored, renewed, refreshed, at dreadful cost to Him what it means to be saved, liberated, set on the path to wholeness and rightness. So that as we begin progressively to discover more of his grace in our lives, we discover more of his influence through our lives. And as we discover more of his influence through our lives, we begin to discover, we begin to pervade the area with a sense of order, a sense of peace, and come to think of it, wasn't that the message? Peace on earth. What a tragedy it is that we use our perverted genius for trivialization. What a tragedy it is that we're able to take the momentous, and gloss it over with the superficial, take the profound and ignore it in our quest for things of secondary or even tertiary concern. How important it is that we grapple with this whole point of Christmas that it's about Emmanuel, God with us to save us. Do you know his saving power? You discovering his redemptive power in your life? Do you know forgiveness of sins? You experiencing peace that passes understanding? Joy unspeakable in desperate circumstances. That confidence that you are his and he is yours. Are you conscious of the fact of being part of his people? Are you rejoicing in being the redeemed, the saved, the people who understand Christmas? I trust you are, but if you're not... Don't waste this Christmas time. Bring your burden and bring your sin and bring your guilt and bring your shame. Bring it to him. Bring your brokenness and bring your pilot light. Present it to him. Seek his forgiveness and his saving grace.